bring and say, how many do you have enough? Can we go now? And she would say, no, 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 a little bit more, a little bit more. In some reports, Aisha falls asleep on his lap. And then it struck me that in these reports in which Aisha falls asleep on his, on his lap, we have no report of him waking her up and leaving. But we do have reports that he would watch wrestling in the beginning of Maghrib and then and it is a, it is a, 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 a subsequent report a subsequent report yeah upon the entry of such and such in the prayer of Isha I found the Prophet sitting with Aisha in, in his lap reciting Quran now you put two and two together obviously she fell asleep as she was watching the wrestling he didn't want to wake her up so he sat with him sleeping on his lap until with Aisha prayed and then woke her up to pray this but there are no reports of himself he clearly preferred swimming riding horses and racing and in his competitiveness he doesn't he's not keen about winning so we have very little very few reports about him racing men we have in Omar uh, not surprisingly was wrestling. and Hamza May Allah bless their souls both was also into wrestling. But one of the things that is striking is one of the the, the sport the Arabs like to race with camels. We have very few reports of the Prophet, there are some, but few reports of, of the Prophet racing with camels in a competitive sport. It doesn't mean competitive sports are wrong because he did it with his wife if you call this competitive um, when, when she became that buff when she became overweight he, she beat her, he beat her when she was not overweight she beat him and the, the, the notation about her overweight comes from her She's, she says you know, when I was not overweight, I beat him, and then proffers her overweight as an excuse for him beating her later. Who so says, you know, he beat me later on because I became overweight. But he is not inclined towards that. And it is again consistent with his personality that we encounter from the very beginning. This is not a confrontational man who relishes competition or relishes the fruits of victory. One of the things that strike you about him is that 
If you read the reports after his military victories, carefully, you find a couple of things that are fascinating. One is his tendency to be happy. I have not tracked a continuous state of happiness, jubilation, I mean, jubilation for more than a day his tendency within that day or a day after to start recounting the responsibilities and thanking people for what they've done but recounting the remaining responsibilities so he would say for example Ah, now we've returned from the small jihad, now we start the big jihad. In other words, it is allowing the, the, the jubilation, but they're limited. The euphoria is never without limits. His tendency to, in several of his battles, when the Muslims are still in jubilation, and he, they, are, they, they ask, where is the Prophet? And, they, and, and his wife say, oh, he has already gone into isolation. He's done. He's finished with the celebration before other people. So OK, well, that's a wrap. Now I, I go back to, the, to, to who I am. Furthermore, in several battles, he returns from battle to find, in at least two of them, that there is a major death in the family. It is as if Allah does not allow him unadulterated pleasure. But there is a remarkable lesson in this, is that unadulterated pleasure is Arabic. Unadulterated pleasure is a form of indulgence that is obscene. That for you to remember the victories achieved without recounting how much more needs to be achieved is going to eventually lead to the death of your heart. And in the case of the Prophet, you know how many of his children died in his lifetime. In fact, all of them, except one. And there is a remarkable grounding as to the truth of things, even in the midst of his mundane jubilation. So he's never allowed to enjoy life in an unadulterated fashion. Now, isn't it arrogant for us to say that, well, the Prophet didn't have a right to enjoy life in an unadulterated fashion, but we do. Isn't it arrogant to say, I have a right 
to be happy in the way I want to be happy. So don't, now let me be very careful here because of the, Ameri the, the, the tendency among um, American culture to, 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 to use categories of love. This, this is not a masochistic call. This is not a call that, oh, well, that means that if I, um, it is a, that, you know, if I am in a miserable job with no future, then I, you know, I should, okay, it's just part of my misery in life. Alhamdulillah, I'll, I'll stay with it. It doesn't mean that, well, if I'm flunking my classes in school, well, you know, that's part of my misery. Or it doesn't mean that I, it's okay if I'm miserable with my wife or my husband that we constantly fight, because it's just part of the misery and, you know, I'm just following the prophet's footsteps. This is absurd. It's ridiculous. This is not the, the, the type of, of sombering we are talking about. The sombering that we are talking about is the sombering of God, not the sombering of human deficiencies. When you are miserable because of a spouse or because of a situation that is wrong in a relationship or a job, you are miserable because of a human failing. This is very different that when you are somber and stayed because of, of divine reality. Because you have a accurate perception of your place in things. What I'm talking about is like what you hear quite often. Well, you know, I, I worked very hard in my life. Isn't it time that I enjoyed myself? Why? Why? If your prophet himself wasn't allowed that reprieve, why are you allowed that reprieve? Oh, I lived my, I lived such and such amount of years serving. Now I'm going to just focus on myself. Focus on yourself in the sense of what? Cleansing yourself? Developing your moral character? No, in the sense that I'm going to start looking at what makes me happy. Believe it or not, I've, I've encountered that among people often. To say, well, you know, I've been in the... In, 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 I am not a, 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 a proponent of, uh, of activism. But nothing rubs me the wrong way because of the arrogance of the statement such as, well, I've served in the Islamic Center for 10 years, and now I'm just going to take it easy and... Who, where do you get that type of indulgence and arrogance? Or, well, you know, I've always wanted a fancy car and I have decided that I will now focus on spoiling myself. This, of course, you hear this among people who have money much more than people who don't. So that you, 
which I find can only be an attitude adopted only if you elevate your own status above the prophets of Islam, or you margin, you, you, you segment the prophet's precedent and shove it away. So that it becomes an ideal, an unattainable ideal, an, atta- an ideal that is never attainable. I am not saying that that you live. That, uh, and again, I don't. It's, I'm not talking about extremes of well. That means that I don't think about the future, etc., etc. What I am talking about is an attitude. Is an attitude. Is a mental emotional predisposition there's an emotional predisposition that says what I that acknowledges the reality of what it the state it is in and there is an emotional predisposition which indulges itself and spoils itself now, the connection that I will make here is between the description of the Prophet as someone who is not taken to being offended, annoyed, pissed off. In other words, someone that you don't have to walk around eggshells around him. And this idea of lack of entitlement or self-indulgence. You will invariably find, invariably, that the most covetous of their property are also those who tend to be the most um, what is the word on it? It's a word that sticks in my mind. Hmm? No, no. Are also the most easily offended, easily transgressed upon. And test this for yourself. You will often find that there is a remarkable correlation between the easygoingness and serenity and tranquility and the beauty of a person and their tendency not to covet what they hold with exclusivity. And the more covetous a person about drawing the boundaries around them, whether it's a personality trait, both in property and outside property, you will find that they also tend to be the people that are the most difficult to live with. So that, for example, you enter a home, and you know that there is a home where you're not going to easily offend the inhabitants because they are not 
covetous of their parameters. They're, they're, they're forgiving and loving of people and caring and understanding. And you will walk into another home and feel that stepping beyond the parameters drawn for you is bound to lead to clear offense. You will find that the home that is open and welcoming is also the place where you feel more comfortable to ask for a favor without being turned away roughly. But the home that seems to be chained in rules and, and, and boundaries is also the home where you will find that you are very uncomfortable asking for anything. Right? If you think about it, you'll find that it is unfailingly so. And consequently, it is entirely consistent in the personality of the Prophet that he is, he, his character, his personality did not dissuade people from asking him because of his openness when it came to anything mundane, when it came to his relationship with Allah, real substance, we find that he is not rudely, but very keen about nursing his own personal relationship. So in other words, he is very open and permissive as to everything that is mundane, and not permissive as to everything that is not mundane. That is a part of the personal history and part of the, 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 the truth of the example that we must follow. One more hadith and then we will stick it away. Now here, an Aisha, and again, we already agreed that in simplicity there is comfort, but there is corruption. And this hadith gives you a degree of non-simplicity, but authenticity. An Aisha, Qadat. استأذن رجل على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وأنا عنه فقال بئس ابن العشير أو أخو العشير ثم أدم له فلما دخل ألان له القوم فلما خرج قلت يا رسول الله قلت وما قلت ثم ألنت قلت should be ما قلت وهو ما قلت ما قلت ثم ألمت له قوم وقال يا عائشة إن من شر الناس من تركه الناس أو 
أودعه الناس اتقاء فحشي. This this report has various levels. What does it say? A man announced himself visiting the Prophet The Prophet was not happy that this man is coming to visit him. And exclaimed to Aisha, Ashira means what what an unfortunate miserable company. So basically he says, oh, not him, by our idiot. So then the man, and then he, the, the Prophet said, enter. And then, but he speaks to the man, Alantala means what? Spoken kindly and gently. He spoken so kindly and gently to the man that Aisha was amazed. This was in the beginning of the, uh, in the beginning of, 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 of her uh, uh, usefulness. In other words, early on. And she, and then when the man left, she told him, Father, I, I, I'm confused. <coughs> when this man came, you said what you said. You said, what a miserable company. But you spoke to this man very kindly and gently and in such a friendly fashion. So he responds, Haisha, the worst, among the worst of people, is that who people stay away from or keep their distance from because of his prophets. Now here, it modifies one, the Prophet appears like a very real human being with emotions. Two, is that honesty in your feeling does not give you a license to hurt and offend others. It, there, is, there, there is the fact that you... Now, to be gentle and kind, even to those who are not deserving, and even of those that you don't like, is not proper. It is an, a religious obligation. Three, it modifies our notion of what? Backbiting. Right? The Prophet is expressing his feeling for Aisha about this man's company. He's saying, this man, I don't like his company. That is not ghaybah. The idea that ghaybah means that you become like an emasculated zombie without feelings or emotions 
is a corruption of the notion of Ghaz. Khaybah is to attack, is, the, is, is a, 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 the child of treachery, is to attack someone behind their back in order to cause them harm, in order to degrade them, cause them harm. If your purpose, and as long as you are, if your purpose is to give your solicited opinion about someone for the purposes of marriage, this is not, this is your purpose. So it turns on your intent, it's not cause of what. If you are saying such and such, I don't believe that such and such is a knowledgeable person and you shouldn't study with them. Not right. But again, it depends on your intent. If you are not speaking the truth of your feeling, but you simply want to cause them harm, that is right. But if you truly believe that they're not a good guy and you want people not to follow them, and you are willing to say this to their face, if need be, it's not ghaibah. This notion of ghaibah is that now the hadith that ghaibah is to say what your brother would not like to hear is taken out of context and out of understanding. Because surely this man would not like to hear that he is not very good company. Or that the Prophet doesn't consider him good company. Surely. But the ghaibah is revolves on the intent to cause harm whether what you say is truthful or not. In other words, whether you have a, a reason beyond simple chatter and entertainment, which is clearly um, namina, if, it, if the purpose is, is entertainment and chatter, then that's namina. And if the in purpose is to cause harm, then that's gaib. Okay, fourth is that the Prophet back is acting again upon the call of prophecy he is now in a different setting that is not necessarily consistent with his inclination in other words before he became a prophet it is he did not seek the company and we don't have reports of people unpleasant people coming to visit him. and we actually will see more interactions of their rather extremely unpleasant people but he understands that now there is a reciprocal there is an obligation upon him to act in a way beyond his personal zone of comfort and it must be performed. And it must be performed according 
to the standards of Islamic morality, not to according to the standards of his feelings or his wits. That in itself is a remarkable lesson. Okay, let's take a break and we'll come back. Ready? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Some questions came up um, during the the break about reports concerning the Prophet wrestling. I should not be understood to be saying that there are no reports that he wrestled. In fact, there are several reports. One of them that he wrestles with someone and upon beating him, this person converts. Another is that he wrestles with, with Omar and so on. But at the same time, we have other reports that say that the Prophet ﷺ did not um, enjoy or did not engage in rest in, in sports of futuwa of, of uh, uh, physical nature. We've got other reports that the Prophet ﷺ never struck a person except in jihad in his life. And in the same way that we have reports on Aisha and Umm Salma that, and, and Anas that the Prophet never struck a person, we have other reports from Abu Huraira that he pushed a person in the chest, that he struck a person with a whip, that he poked someone in the eye and so on. And the, the job of, of a person engaging the Sunnah is the job of someone who is offering a systematic coherent view of the Sunnah is to look at the chains of transmission, to look at who is reporting uh, a particular incident, and to look at the balance of evidence, the cumulative balance of evidence, and then make a judgment. Now, there might it is possible that the Prophet wrestled once or twice, but that this does not negate, it is possible, negate the point that we were making about his nature, his orientation. But the wrestling reports are problematic because they carry the, the stench of the Qusas. And in my school of thought, I don't accept reports that come by the way of chains of transmissions that were popular among the Qusas. The, uh, and the Qusas are the, the storytellers. As, as we covered in previous halakas, that the storytellers was a major form of entertainment. And the more dramatic and theatrical the story they said, uh, the more popular they would be, and like many Uthuli, um 
jurists, the, the chains of transmissions that had become popular among the Qusas are not worth much in my judgment. Furthermore, if you have a report from Aisha or Um Salma or Anas, Anas who we know of course was the Prophet's servant and, and lived and was very close to him for at least 10 years. And he says that I have never seen him or heard of him striking any person. And then I have a report from Abu Hurairah saying, Abu Hurairah saying that he poked someone in the eye or something like that. To me, it's no contest. It is not an issue that gives me pause. The issue, of course, is augmented, particularly when I find that the, that the Abu Hurairah uh, reports were extremely popular among the Qusas. Qusas, the Abu Hurairah was popularized in the Qusas literature. And that the chain of transmission um, was one that, again, was used by the storytellers. Now, of course, one might say, well, why, how come is it that we find in Bukhari the chain of transmission of the storytellers there? Why does Bukhari accept some hadith in which the, the chain of transmission by the Qusas were there? Well, it, it, this again to me is a non-issue because my skepticism towards the storytellers is a skepticism produced by contemporary critical methods of analysis, by our understanding of the psychology of people who devote themselves to entertain others, stories about this, by reciting stories about the prophet and the companions, by understanding the psychology of the populace in other words, this is a product of the, of the science that Ibn Khaldun founded, sociology. And it is this sociology or psychosociology that in the contemporary age makes me very critical of the chains of transmission that were invented by the storytellers. In fact, as some of you know, Abu Huraira was a, a popular figure with the storytellers, story I mean his reports, reports that he transmitted, because of the fact that, and may Allahu Alam, and I'm, I'm not saying this in order to, to attack someone who could have very well been uh, truthful. Um, but there are reports that Abu Huraira had already had, had reported hadith in return for food or payment. That is exactly the type of practice that the storytellers do. This is exactly what the Qusas do. They come to a town and people feed them or pay them money in return for them telling them stories. And 
all of this gives me what I believe Allahu Alam to be a healthy skepticism about these types of chains. The fact that Abu, uh, the, the fact that Bukhari didn't have that skepticism to me is not a fatal flaw. And particularly when I find that other jurists, jurists which I have high regard, uh, high regards for, like uh, Al-Amidi, like Ibn Akhir, like Tajuddin al-Subki, like Al-Mawardi himself in his uh, um, book on uh, his, his monumental work on Shafi Fiqh had the same type of skepticism vis-a-vis the storytellers and their reports. And in fact, you can glean some of this in Kitab al-Afkar you know Kitab al-Askar, it's a, it's a very sort of... If you read the introduction to Kitab al-Askar, and then if you read towards the end of the book, yeah. Imam al-Nawawi tells you that there is... In fact, hold on, let me see if I Xerox it. I might have. In fact, I did zero It says, قال العلماء من المحدثين يجوز ويستحب العمل في الفضائل والترغيب والترهيب بالحديث الضعيف ما لم يكن موضوعا وأما الأحكام and then موضوعا was this commentator saying وفي معناه شديد الضعف فلا يجوز العمل بخبر من انفرد من كذاب ومتهم so anyway, وأما الأحكام كالحلال والحرام والبيع والنكاح والطلاق وغير ذلك فلا يعمل فيها إلا بالحديث الصحيح أو الحسن إلا أن يكون في احتياط في شيء من ذلك uh, elsewhere towards end he says uh, that أحاديث الفضائل يتسامح فيها عند أهل العلم what he's saying is is that there was a tendency, I mean, he, he says that when it comes to Fada'il, now what is the Fada'il? These are the stories about the, the characteristics of the Prophet and, and basically stories that don't have direct legal significance to positive commandments or law. That there, the, the tendency was to be liberal in accepting these reports, in, 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 in both reporting them and in relating them and reciting them. This, of course, because the jurists had a very legal orientation. The jurists were not moralists. 
for the most part. And their legal orientation was, well, you know, if you want to be demanding and exact, then be demanding with exact uh, with a hadith that has legal relevance. But if it's a hadith that doesn't have legal relevance, then you could be liberal and permissive. Well, of course, the problem then in this is that the standards of legal relevance, one, are not objective standards. This is not a mathematical science. So what could have been considered of legal of, of no legal relevance in one age could become of legal relevance in a different age. Right? So when you have these reports about the Prophet ﷺ hitting someone, well, in their age, they didn't see any legal, legal relevance to it because there's no question that in law you're not allowed to hit someone. So they would say, ah, okay, well, whatever, recite it if you want. But in the day, day and age of constitutional law, whether the Prophet hit someone or not could be of significant legal relevance. Everyone following what I'm saying? Yeah, in the age where something like this could affect the establishment of a constitutional legal principle. So the, the, the definition of legal relevance is not one that is constant, and it is very dangerous to not apply a fresh critical insight to this matter. Second, is that often what this paradigm meant is is that you are meticulous is that you are supposed to be meticulous about the authenticity of traditions when it came to ahkam when it came to laws but you would be less rigorous when it came to morality now, one is tempted to say that this is problematic, but you have to understand that the attitude was that we, when it comes to descriptions of who the prophet was, the attitude was that we put in everything, we throw in everything, and then let the scholars work with the raw material as they see fit. And in that day and age, they, they thought that if something is going to have a legal effect on how people behaved, then we can be exacting. But if it was just simply the story of the storytellers, in other words, just stories, with no legal relevance, who cares? But in the contemporary age, in our modern age, that counsels us to be very careful very careful because remember that the same standard was not applied to the hadith or the hadith related to law as the hadith related to stories about the companions and the prophet and that even in Nawawi when you read his book on, on, on law you would find that majority of the hadith that he has in his popular book 
for storytellers in Kitabul Afkar are not in his law book. The vast majority of these hadiths are, are not reliable and does not rely on them. In, in, in their historical context, this was entirely an entirely rational and reasonable way to proceed with things. That if something was relevant to law, then it mattered. If something wasn't, but it worked within certain institutions. The no one took the storytellers very seriously because the storytellers basically scared people about hellfire, promised them the joys of heaven, and entertained people. And rather than people going to nightclubs and getting drunk, they, they, they gather together to hear something, nice stories about the prophet and the companion. Our day and age is very different. Our day and age, this is not entertainment anymore. Everyone following what I'm saying? So this is no longer entertainment. Entertainment today is TV, movie theaters, we approach all of this as knowledge. We don't differentiate between Kitabul Askar. I mean, if you are a moron and you read Kitabul Askar, when someone comes comes to you and he says, "I uh, I am an expert in Kitabul Askar," which, as we said, is the book of Nawawi containing popular storytelling, right? And even Ihya Ulum al-Din was written for the popular, in, which incorporated an enormous amount of traditions by the storytellers. And so when someone comes to you and says, I am, I've read and become an expert in Kitabul Askar today, and someone else comes and says, ah, I've read and become an expert in Minhaj al-Talibin, our popular, our culture today doesn't dis differentiate. You will be as impressed by someone who's read Kitabul Askar as someone who's read Minhaj al-Talibin. You will not say, oh, but Kitab al-Azkar is a book of storytellers. No, 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 that doesn't count. Minhaj al-Talibin, now that's a real source. Now that counts. We don't make these differentiations. And consequently, when, when you find that our definition of expertise and knowledge is so loose, and indefinite, which means that the scholars today must apply an exacting standard on the basis of knowledge of what was and what is. Be of exposure to the seerah of the Prophet to be able to distinguish between the one and the other. Or to be able to say, you know, this counts as law. But this is just a moral lesson, so I can remember the hereafter and so on. And as I said already, among the jurists like Subki and others, they had started sensing the damage done by the storytellers. And some of them you will find that in their writings, they, uh, they start becoming critical of the traditions circulated. 
And so what started emerging was books like the book of Sakhawi on Al-Mushtahir Al-Ahadith Al-Du'af Al-Mushtahira Bayna Al-Nas meaning the books started being composed about weak hadith that are that are popular among the people have you have some of you at least ever noticed these books that are written about hadith that are widely disseminated among people and telling you these are weak hadith and if you notice that these books are all written quite late they're all written after the 4th, 5th century Hijrah. And that is what the cry of the jurists, or the attempt of the jurists, or the, the, the starting of the process by which the jurists started awakening to the damage done by the storytellers. And so what they would write, like Sakhawi's book, Sakhawi is quite late, he's in 8th century, or 9th century. And he writes a book basically and several others um, like it, which say, okay, well, I, you know, we better get the record straight about there are some hadiths that people use very, very widely, but they're not authentic, and we shouldn't be relying on them, or people shouldn't be counting on them. Anyway, it's a sidebar, but it's an important sidebar because, again, it captures glimpses of the process of knowledge that existed in our in in our history, yeah. Allah alam. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a whole package. Not everything that Abu Huraira transmitted, if in fact he did transmit it, is to be rejected, but is to be scrutinized. Um, considering Aisha's skepticism about him. Another layer, an additional layer, is that Abu Huraira was a popular figure among the storytellers. The storytellers tended to attribute reports to certain individuals, and Abu Huraira was one of their, their superstars. Not Abu Huraira as a real person, but the name Abu Huraira. So they would often slap Abu Huraira's name on a report because it had his vintage, it had the proper theatrics. If you, if you read many of the reports of Abu Huraira, um, and I can't, you know, I can't come out with a blanket statement and all the reports are the product of storytellers, but what strikes you is, is that there is a certain theatrical quality in what he reports. And even if events themselves are not very theatrical the way he recites them 
have a theatrical twist. Now, each report can be looked at separately and so that I can find a chain of transmission. Abu Huraira reports something. The chain of transmission is not a chain of transmission that was popular among the storytellers. And then I suspect that this is in fact a report from Abu Huraira, the real Abu Huraira. And then I find another report that had a chain of transmission that was looked packaged and, and, and um, packaged for memorization and reproduction by the storytellers. And then I suspect that Abu Huraira actually never said this and that this is something that they use. And so, and there's numerous other pieces of evidence that you consider. I mean, there are, there are reports that um, there are reports that are transmissions from certain individuals that immediately give you pause because of the fact that these individuals had become popular points for connecting the unconnected. You have a loose transmission and you, 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 you have a, a, a space that's empty and these were popular Mecca points, so to speak. Um, now, of course, when you deal with the traditions about law, you find that many of the traditions have already been substan substantially scrutinized by jurists. But the, uh, the, the, the traditions on so-called the fadail are very under-scrutinized. But yet these are the traditions that in the contemporary age we often rely on. So um, many of the traditions, for example, in Riyadh al-Salihin are traditions of fadail. Um, many of the, the, the popular books and people are not aware about what is it what is the, 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 the material they're, they're actually dealing with anyway um, okay Now, <coughs> let's um, continue on we already uh, reviewed um, we already reviewed the hadith I think about the Prophet not beating anyone right Yes. Okay. Then <coughs> let's um, let's take just a few more glimpses. 
this one and <coughs> Umar ibn al-Khattab <coughs> it says أن رجلا جاء إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فسأله أن يعطيه فقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ما عندي شيء ولكن أبتع علي فإذا جاءني شيء قضيته فقال عمر يا رسول الله قد أعطيته, قد أعطيته فما كلف الله ما لا تقدر عليه فكره صلى الله عليه وسلم قول عمر فقال رجل من الأنصار يا رسول الله انفق ولا تخف من ذي العرش إقلالا فتبسم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وعرف البشر في وجهه لقول الأنصاري ثم قال بهذا أمرت so this report which again take them as as if photographs of the character the personality a man comes to the Prophet والسلام, and he says that give me something huh? give me something that he's in need um, I want to check if this is the one where the translation was all messed up. Okay, so the, the Prophet ﷺ t- says what? Says well, the, the, the man asks for some help. And the Prophet ﷺ says, I, re- I don't have anything. But, go buy something and send me the bill. I, I always love this report. <laughs> the, the idea of send me the bill, is, I don't know, it just gives me a chuckle. فَإِنْجَ أَنِي شَيْئًا قَضَيْتُ means what? Mean, okay, go buy and when People come to me and, and say pay up, I'll, I'll, I'll pay it for you. So Umar ibn al-Khattab, who early on in Medina, until he, he, people understood that this really bothers him, said, uh, Prophet, you, God hasn't required of you more than your ability. God has not asked you to do this. The Prophet ﷺ, here in this report, which is from Umar himself, but it is uh, the the riwayat Harun bin Musa, where he says that, he, he became very unhappy with it. 
In another report, there is a, a further elaboration that his face changed, which is not, uh, not an inconsistency. But he became uh, a very un displeased with the statement. Upon this, we have a companion from the Ansar who is, who is with them, and he comments saying, O Prophet of God, it is, uh, he noticed that the Prophet became unhappy. He said, O Prophet of God, spend as much as you want and don't worry for God will always take care of you. And the Prophet responds, he smiles, his face brightens up, and he says, That's exactly right. I'm, I'm rendering it in, in our idioms, so to speak. It gives you, again, a, a very intimate and real glimpse of the interactions. Omar is worried about the, the, the Prophet's well-being. Omar himself is aware that the Prophet go has, suffers a headache because of his generosity and kindness. <coughs> and here, clearly, the, 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 the Prophet doesn't have anything, but is unable to send the man away, or unwilling to send the man away, without something. And he does what is truly remarkable. He says, go ahead, get what you, what you need, and send me the bill. And Omar is concerned, not out of misery, not out of being stingy, because Omar himself gave in the way of God much, but out of concern for the Prophet ﷺ, who doesn't seem to to have any limits in this regard. And he says, you know, this is too much. By our idiom, this is exactly what he said. But instead of the Prophet والسلام, and this is what I was talking to you about earlier, engaging in a harangue against Omar, which is again a sense of his own personality, he reacts in the way that he often reacted to situations that make him very unhappy with his face changing and becoming visibly sad which then another companion notices and it is as if he's saying don't be sad okay you know do what you want I know, we, we, I'm not worried. God will take care of me. Which the Prophet ﷺ responds with a smile. Now notice here that this is, this is the same man who is not upset, as we said, who's not a touchy man, a man that don't, you don't need to walk on eggshells around. Not a man who is easily taken to offense, 
But look at his reaction when it involves a principle. And also look at his reaction when he sees that the principle is upheld instantaneously. Uh, which reminds me, we were talking before the break, how does one know whether, when I was going on about how do you make your conscience your guide as to As to how to make your conscience your guide about your, so to speak, your, your domain, your, your boundaries, your property, and so on. Um, the same sheikh who, who told me that uh, you want to know whether a, a teacher will survive and examine his students and see how much they sleep and how hard they work as compared to their teacher is also the one who once told me that I was saying well if someone I mean we talk about the fogs and we talk about the hujub and so on and how, how does someone get a, a sense of a yardstick about whether they're being reasonable and responsible or being immoral. And he said, what is the nature of something that's wrong? And I said, are you, are you referring to the hadith of the Prophet? He said, yes. I said, well, what you don't want, what rubs you the wrong way, and you don't want people to know. He says, one clear sign for someone being on the wrong track is someone who conceals or lies about their actual financial abilities. Not for the judgment of others, for your own personal judgment. If you conceal or lie about your own financial abilities, that is a fairly good indication that you feel guilty about how much you fail to give, and that you know it's wrong. You mean if you don't, if you have too much, you mean you conceal how much you have, or if you don't have enough, you conceal that you're poor? No, the other one. If, if you basically understate what you have, and overstate what you don't have, that is often the earmark of, of someone who is mishandling Allah's trust which is of course is that when you ask them or you don't ask them but when they they often speak they speak as if they are people of very limited means or they 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 have no you know whatever the misrepresentation is but they know that it's different and they exaggerate their fears and risks 
so that they exaggerate the, the risks that surround the, the dangers of poverty and understate the securities of lack of poverty. Anyway, I, I've always thought, I've always, after I heard this, I have always used that as my standard. And I have found it to be the most compelling standard. That you, whenever you catch yourself being dishonest, you know that you also catch yourself with mud all over you. You're, you're not being clean. Um, and this should be a call of your conscience to you. Okay. Now, let's look at another example. And I'm going to pick up the pace to try to cover more hadith since I have all of this next to me and I haven't even gotten to it, which is... I, he, I haven't even gotten to my selections from Bukhari. Anyway. Okay. Oh, um, maybe I should just talk about this hadith because you've... Those of you who have read the uh, the conference of the books, the conference called Dreaming of the Prophet, know, have already have seen some of these reports which... So now, now we'll, we'll cheat and cover something in Bukhari as well. Which occur in Bukhari as well as Tirmizi, Nisa'i and Abu Muslim and Muslim which reveal a, a, a rather amazing glimpse about his personality and these reports are of the type represented by this and then I'll, I'll just introduce the variations without reading them um, again on Ennis now here this this is this is among the golden chains that was not at all popular with the storytellers Suwaid bin Abdul Aziz and Humaid and Ennis bin Malik through Ali bin Hushr this, this is a chain that is not popular with the storytellers and most of the time strikes gold. So Anna says that a woman approaches the Prophet والسلام, and جاءت إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقالت إني لي إليك حاجة فقال اجلسي في أي طريق في أي طريق المدينة شئت أجلس إليك 
you followed that? That a woman comes to the Prophet and says, I, I need something. I want something from you. And the Prophet responds to her by saying, Pick the spot. I will sit with you. In another report, Um Salma tells us, and another version, Aisha tells us, that the Prophet would walk around, this is what I uh, talked about in Dreaming of the Prophet, and a woman would come to him and take him by the hand and walk with him for him to fulfill a, an issue or another and he would not protest or ask her where they're going. Sometimes they are taken to he is, is taken by the hand to resolve a marital dispute. Sometimes to most often the ones I've ran into are involved marital disputes, I mean family disputes, not necessarily marital but family disputes. So often something relating to uh, um, um, cheating in trade or or a an attempt of a woman to buy something and unable to obtain the price she wants or she gets the product in a, a, in a, in a, uh, in, a, in a fashion that is not in other words a, a commercial type complaint but what is remarkable here is that the women who had become disempowered or who were disempowered often had the attitude and you see this in the Sunnah consistently that well okay I'm going to the Prophet okay I'm gonna tell the Prophet okay I'm gonna go bring the Prophet so we have numerous reports we have reports of a woman that wanted to see her, her to, to visit her family and her husband wouldn't let her, let her, so she said, okay, well, I'm going to go tell the Prophet. We have a woman who, uh, Um Hani, who gives a guarantee of safe conduct to someone, and she is told that, no, we, we won't respect your safe conduct. She says, what? Okay, I'm going to go tell the Prophet. We have a woman who Umar ibn al-Khattab is teasing her and telling her, Oh, you're that woman who ran to Abyssinia when we were migrating and suffering in the way of God. And she says, oh, that what you say? Okay, that, fine. I'm, go I'm not going to eat or drink anything until I go and tell the Prophet. Now, this same woman, by the way, is later on married by Abu Bakr. And when Abu Bakr dies, Ali marries her. And, and what emerges is a patron. A patron that this gentle man had a remarkably beautiful welcoming generous 
open demeanor about him. That this is a man that the weak would immediately think, well, I can't get justice, I'm going to him. This is not, I'm not talking about institutional accessibility here. Because often when people talk about these traditions, they talk about them in the context of, oh, look about how a leader should be. With I'm not talking about that. I am talking about his personality. We know that he was uncomfortable being touched by women that he was not married to. But a woman would come and grab him and drag him, and he doesn't want to hurt her feelings by saying, let go of my hand. He doesn't even... This is like that game that children used to play where they, they, they move around and they say stop and everyone freezes. Until that point where it says go. Okay. What was I talking about? Oh, oh. Yeah. And he is too polite to say, okay, okay, fine, I'll come with you, but let go of my hand. And when a woman, when a woman could come to him and say, I, I need something, and that response of, Okay, wh wherever you want, I'll come help. That is not... This is something that cannot be bought or mimicked. This is something that comes out a purity and gentleness of character. In another report, a woman who was, in, was deranged, apparently she was insane, I politely called her in dreaming of the prophet senile, but she wasn't senile, she was actually insane. She had a habit of going to the prophet and saying, come, come, I, I, I need your help, I need your help. And she would then detain him, complaining about what she understood. I mean, Allahu A'lam, what she complained about. You know, uh, Martians invading from outer space, um, uh, d demons, that, uh, whatever it is. But we know that she was well known in Medina, that she was insane. And she was well known that she seemed to take, it's a type of derangement where she constantly wants to find someone of importance to tell them all the really important things that they must know about. And in one of the reports we are told that the that the Prophet sat with her in the street, out in the street for approximately an hour, simply talking to her. She would come to him and say, I need to talk to you, I need to talk to you. And you would say, Marhaban Biki. 
How are you, um such and such? Where do you want to sit? Now, this... Look at the, the, the following... Um, the following set of reports in which the Prophet ﷺ has an additional aspect to his character which starts emerging as a logical extension from everything you've heard so far and that is his sense of humor his endearing, lovely, beautiful sense of humor. Here, another golden chain, Mahmoud bin Ghailan, Abu Usama, An Shariq, An Asim, An Asim al Ahwal, An Anas bin Malik. Qal, النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال له يا ذا الأذنين The Prophet عليه الصلاة والسلام is joking so he jokes with um, he is actually joking with um, Anas and he says, how are you, O man of the two ears? It doesn't quite translate. <laughs> well, the, the, the point is, well, everyone has two ears. So it is, it is funny because it states the rather obvious and apparent. That's exactly right. That's it. Yeah. Hey, you, the one with two ears. But, you know, in, and Anas tells us, <laughs> and Anas tells us that the Prophet ﷺ would joke with him frequently, other than the report that he never yelled at him and never got mad at him d during his 10 years of service and other than the report that he would always smile at him when he sees him but he would frequently joke with him one day Anas uh, the prophet came in and he found Anas with his, with his young brother in the prophet's home so he told the brother, the brother, Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'ala nu'ayr? Now, uh, this what uh, It should be nu'ayr. Why is it? Yeah, it should be nu'ayr. Nu'ayr. Huh? Very, well, let me elaborate on it. Now, first is Abba Umair. This is a child. Right? He's not the father of anyone. 
So that, that's, that's joke number one. The second is this child used to have a bird which is a type of bird called Nuhayr. It's a, it's, a, it's a type of bird. And the Prophet says, how is the Nuhayr doing? How is, how is the bird doing? Now, there are, as, as everything, there are two versions here. <laughs> One version, and, and which tells you, I mean, it's sort of... Uh, in one version, he, he is asking, the, 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 the child used to have a bird that died, and he was sad about the bird, he was crying about the bird, and the Prophet ﷺ afterwards would tease him by saying, how is the bird? The second is that... <laughs> now, of course, the... the uh, Need I say which version ends up in the in the translation here? In the in the second version, the the child had a bird which he which he liked, and the Prophet asks him every time he sees him about how the bird is doing. And then when the bird dies and he is crying. The Prophet asks him, how, how is the bird doing? And then the, 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 the child starts crying. And he asks Anas, well, what, what's going on? Why is he crying? He says, oh, he died. And the Prophet comforts him. Says, it, it, it is, he has returned to Allah. Raja'a min haysu. Adam min Yeah, yeah, but But in he's what I find again, which is an interesting aspect about the ugliness that pervades us. We have two versions. One version which makes sense. You're asking about a child's birth, consistent with the prophet's personality. He finds that that the bird died. He comforts the child. In the second version, he teases it poor child about a dead bird <laughs> and which version finds itself in our books of course the second is this a psychopathic absurdity or not there is a third version which I pray that I actually Xerox but if not because the language I, I like um Now here,
In Bukhari and Muslim, we have a a, 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 a a version reported, which is which is um, of some interest. Again, again, it involves a joke in which Nuhair, as we said, is is a bird. And it's a bird with a red beak. And it looks... And a... When you call a man Nugayr, or Nugayr means what? Means a person who... Ignites... Um, is angry. I mean, maybe I should just tell you the. Um, uh, it's not the. the is the Arabic. The, the boil. Boils with anger. And so the bird is a bird of a red beak. And in, in the classical Arabic, when you are a person who tends to get red in the face when you're upset, we call you a Nugayr sort of start fuming. And the Prophet in one in, in a couple of these reports teases one of the companions who tended to be like that by saying, How is the Nugayr doing today? And so you don't know if he's referring to how is the bird doing or how is the, the man who fumes with a red face doing today. In, in another report, um, which um, ima- uh, the, um, that's, uh, in one version, a group of women come to the Prophet ﷺ. In the Tirmidhi version, a group of men come to the Prophet ﷺ. In the in the uh, Bukhari and Nisa'i version, it's women. In the Tirmidhi version, it's men. And they come to the Prophet and say, you know, uh, Prophet, we need a ride. We, we, they're traveling somewhere, and we need to ride on something, camel or whatever. So. I have to explain this a little bit, so maybe you'll get the the humor. First, let me read it in Arabic, and then and then see if you can get it from the Arabic. Uh, at least the ones who know Arabic. Ya Rasulullah, ihminna, faqal inni hamilakum ala waladin naqa. Faqalu, ya Rasulullah, wa ma nasna' bi waladin naqa. فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وهل تلد الإبل إلا النوق الإبل إلا النوق okay here goes in Arabic you have the jamal which is a camel right and it's a young camel 
is called what? It's called naqa, jam' nuq, right? So a, a camel, a real camel, is a jam'. Is that masculine versus feminine? No. A. Where was I? Uh, a real camel is jam'. Okay. A real camel, a grown up camel, which you can actually ride on, is jam'. A young camel that you cannot ride on is called enough and so when and in poetry you refer to a young camel that cannot be ri ridden yet as waladinak so these women come to the prophet a little Ali said we need a ride so he says, okay, I will prepare some nakas for you. So they say, nakas? What are we going to do with nakas? We need a ride. And he says, and is there any camel who, who isn't a naka? Meaning that that wasn't at one point a naka. Huh? I mean, so he's, it's a, it's a teasing brain teaser or play on words but what is again what I find quite remarkable about this report is whether he's joking with a man or a woman and so on the, the reporters tell us these are not identifiable individuals this is a gratuitous sense of humor in other, I mean, these are not individuals that the reporters, if they were people of that shan, who were important, we would have been told immediately, such and such and such person came to a problem and did da, da da But we're told, no, they were just either men or just women. And yet, he jokes with them, and you start getting a sense for his sense of humor. He, his humor is not put-downs. His humor is not obscene. And in fact, when he is asked...